much horror business Driving late at night Psycho 78 12 o'clock Don't be late I said all this horror business Greetings and salutations My name is Justin Moore And I'm Liam O'Donnell You are listening to Episode 87 of our business. I was about to guess 87 because I didn't know what it was. I was like, I bet we're around 87. Mm-hmm. You know what next episode is going to be? Um, a completely insignificant number. Uh, a Youth of Today themed episode. Oh, I like that you went that way with it. Yeah, where else would I go with it? <sighs> Nothing. Yeah, okay. In the current political climate, there's nowhere else I could go with it. <laughs> no, there's nothing else. Cer- certainly not with fucking quasi-neo-fascists in the White House and hordes of uh, insecure, incel pieces of shit running rampant in the streets. Yo, did I, ever, um, did I ever tell you that when I first started going to shows, there was a band in my area called Spirit of 88? And I had, no, I, rem- I had no idea what that was about. I remember Spirit of 88. I was like, what happened in 88 that this band cares so much about? I started kindergarten. Sure. Yeah, that sounds right. No, I'm sorry. Oh, did I? I did, yeah. Yeah, 88. Justin, who's responsible for this episode besides us? Our Patreon subscribers. <laughs> Before we talk about our beautiful, wonderful... Oh, God damn it! Who was the guy from fucking Great Expectations who was, like, financing Pip... He was at the convict that Pip helps in the beginning. This is this is a much too literary question for me to handle. Charles Dickens is a deep cut for you? Yeah, I don't really know much Charles Dickens. Like, I know, like, you know, it was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. Stupid monkey. That's what I got. That's acceptable. That's all I got. That's all the Charles Dickens I got. Holy fuck. Any, okay. Anyway, I'm just, forget I fucking said that. If you know what I'm talking about, send it on Twitter. You've never read Great Expectations? I mean, I was required to read it at some point, but I forget everything about it. Oh, it's so fucking good. Oh, it's so good. I'm not really a Dickens guy. Okay. I'm more into classics like Chaucer. Oh, right. My bad. (laughs) You enjoy the Canterbury Tales. (laughs) I couldn't even keep serious for that. This episode is going to be a bit of a monster mash. We are diving into the universal classics with 1931s. Mm. Todd Browning's uh, other movie, Dracula, 1931, and the 1954 fucking absolute banger of a movie, the best Universal movie, the best Universal monster, fuck anyone who disagrees, the creature from the Black Lagoon. I, well, I, we're, we'll get into this more when we talk about it, but it's important. A lot of people say Universal monsters. And then sometimes they say universal horror. And I think it's it's worth making a distinction there because so for example, I got this classic monsters box set, which I'm glad okay. I which I'm glad I got because both Dracula and Creature from the Black Lagoon look amazing. If I had a three D TV, I'd be able to watch Creature from the Black Lagoon in three D because it was apparently shot in three D in the fifties. Yep. Yep. So uh that's cool. Um so I'm glad I got the box set, but the box set I realized only after I bought it is only organized around the classic monsters. But if you're thinking about the universal horror uh, sort of movement or, or a moment in, in films, those weren't all monster movies. So there are some movies that aren't in the set that I was 
hoping for because I have never seen them. Um, and so now I got to go find those out on my own. And that's a little bit of a bummer, you know, but it is what it is. What are some other universal? Well, so like universal- uh, the Black Cat would be a good one. Or okay. um, what's another one? I, again, I'm probably the last person to ask because the, the only universal. We'll t- I guess we'll get more to this when we talk about our history with these movies. But the only universal monster movies I know are like the most obvious. You know, like I've seen Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Creature from the Lab, Black Lagoon, um, uh, Wolfman. And that's about it, actually. Hmm. So I feel pretty out of touch from that whole history of, uh, you know, kind of an emergence of a genre within film that's probably pretty important for a guy on a horror podcast to know about. But I, you know, I, I haven't been able to dive in the way that I think a lot of people have. I, I kind of avoided them for a while, and I and I regret that a little bit. Fair enough. I mean, all cards on the table, I'm not nuts about many of these movies except the ones we really talked about that we're going to talk about. Oh, Bride of Frankenstein is actually my favorite of all these movies. Ah, <sighs> you would say that. You would say that. <laughs> you fucking beta cuck. I'm okay with that. Anyway... This episode is also brought to you by you, our beautiful, wonderful, beautiful Patreon subscribers. We will always do this for free. We don't want to make money off this. But running a podcast and running a collective, there are costs to it. So we sometimes, you know, we, uh, we need help. If you want to be the magwitch to our pips... Oh, no. You brought it back. If you want to be the magwitch to our pips, then you can go to patreon.com backslash and and you can be a patron. You can, you, you can finance our gentleman lifestyles about old London town, where we'll go about and try to, we'll try to swoon Estelle away from the grips of Miss Havisham with our tutor, Matthew Pocket, and we'll get a nice house at Bernard's Inn. With Herbert Pocket. And <laughs> I hate everything about this. So if you want to fund if okay, we might we might run into some legal finances because technically we use an unlicensed song at the beginning of this podcast. If you want to give us uh, money to pay a Mr. Jaggers who is Pip's lawyer and great expectations, patreon.com backslash Cinepunks. And it's you don't just get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping struggling artists, then you're helping bring Beautiful, creative things into the world. You know, we got a lot of really cool things going on the site. Uh, got a lot of great articles, a lot of great podcasts. Um, we're gonna have coverage of the upcoming Nightstream uh, online film festival. So you're 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 helping pay the bills for that too. We also will send you cool shit. I am about seventy five percent of the way being convinced by Chris fucking reject to do another hard business Patreon exclusive T shirt. So. That'll be coming your way as well. If I if he, you know, puts my arm in a in a joint lock and he 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 forces me into submission through some kind of weird million dollar man esque sleeper hold, which would be the million dollar dream if you're familiar with nineteen eighties professional wrestling. Um so if anything that I just said, you heard what I just said and you're like, I want to not only enable this, but also pay for it in a small way. Head to www.patreon.com backslash Cinepunks 
and fucking smash that MF in like and subscribe button. One dollar, five dollar, ten dollar, whatever. It doesn't matter. Anything you give is so greatly appreciated that the only way we can express our gratitude is by expressing our gratitude, like I'm expressing my gratitude right now in advance, and sending you cool shit. So one more time, patreon.com backslash cinepunks. I think you did. I think you did a good job. Do we, yeah, yeah. Do we want to talk about um, reject, or we just want to leave that alone? Uh, LVAC, xlvacx.com. They're great. We love them. We make fun of Chris Reject a lot, but Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations are great, so you should go get something printed there as soon as humanly possible. Like, run out and do it right now. I, actually, don't run out and do it, because he doesn't want you at the shop. Just go to the website right now, look it up, send him an email, make extravagant requests. Like, say, I need this design on six different kinds of shirts, and, like, you know, just get crazy with it. And I think that would be really say, great. Say you need, you, you're looking to get like sweatpants made um, for your, uh, your, your slam metal band, but you need a specific kind of pant. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Make it as difficult and complicated for him to find as possible. Also, uh, only get stuff on comfort colors. He loves that. He loves it. Yes. If you only do comfort colors. Because here's the thing about Chris Reject. And I'm going to tie this in with our episode because it talks about vampires. You know those like stories where like, you know, like, you know, I don't know, like the dark ages when you're like, if you're out like walking on a road at night and like a vampire like jumps out of a bush and like scares you, you just like throw a handful of rice on the ground and vampires are so obsessed with counting things that they have to stop and count every grain of rice, giving you time to just get the fuck out of there. Um, similarly... If you come to Chris Reject and you're like, I have an order for you for, for my slam metal sweatpants, and you make it as complicated as possible, he is such a neurotic, obsessive human being who is so dedicated to doing a good job, he will do every stupid fucking thing you ask him to do. And that's a good thing, because it, 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 it means two things. You're getting a quality product with excellent worksmanship, and you're making Chris's life a living hell. And those are both good things. Pretty great. Yeah. Uh, he also, like I said, he is currently trying to get me to do more Patreon exclusives. So this is my revenge upon him. Mm-hmm. You can head to www.xlvacx.com. That's www.xlvacx.com. And you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at the LVAC. And I think it's on Twitter. It's the underscore LVAC. Um, you should all no, don't, 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 don't slide into his DMs. He hates that. Just email him. So one more time, www.xlvacx.com. Now comes the time of the podcast. Now, where I call Liam into my office, in my real estate office in in London, and I, I tell him that um, that our good friend. Um, Rembrandt von Renfield has has been stricken with uh, brain fog or whatever and he he can't complete his duties and so I have to send Liam to um, Transylvania to to finalize the deal with the enigmatic count count Dracula but before I'm I'm curious because I I suspect Liam won't make it back so I ask him like hey if you die and I don't ever see you again like what have you been doing recently involving horror movies (laughs) This is one of the more random ones that you've done, by the way. This is a random yes. 
It's very random. Yes. Uh, so I watched a little movie called Random Acts of Violence. Hmm. Okay. Did you see this? Yes, I did. We talked about it on the show. Oh, we did. I forgot about that. Uh, what did you think? I forget what you said. I wasn't crazy about it. I am also not crazy about it. Um, I admit that that is probably exacerbated by its director claiming that he was doing something new or meta or whatever the fuck he said. But, you know, directors say stuff. You know, they say stuff to sell their movies, so I don't blame them too bad. But it is weird to watch it, and it's so thoroughly mediocre that I really wish he hadn't said something. Like, I get you want people to see your movie, so you want people to think, like, oh, there's something new and cool about this. But there's so not anything new or cool about it. It's just okay. It's a sort of movie. I, 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 it's a sort of movie that, like, if I was at a film fest uh, and I saw it, I might be stoked a little bit because there's that that excitement, you know. But uh, it's not memorable. It doesn't stick with you. It doesn't really no, have it, meat on it the has, bones. It has like a vaguely giallo, like story. Vaguely, in the sense that, like, there's a killer reenacting something that the sure. protagonist, and they're vaguely connected somehow to it. So, like, that's kind of cool. But then, like, everything else around it is just like when they revealed the ide- identity, identity of the killer. I was on some fucking like beast, the beast must die level. Like, who is that again? Like, what, what, why, why am I invested in the identity of the killer? You know what I mean? It just wasn't. Whack. Well, and it does. I will say the thing about it too that made me think of Giallo is it pretends there's a mystery long after you know there's no mystery. Like it, it continues yes. to suggest that that maybe someone in the group is somehow implicated, and and a little bit the main character is. But I knew immediately not in a way that made you know not in a way that like made him guilty. You know what I mean? So, no, the, the the main character was implicated in the way that any good police officer would be like he his work is the only only common denominator in these murders ergo maybe it's a good idea to look into what this guy's doing that's it yeah well but we as the audience know he's not the fucking killer right i just i also think taking the angle in one of these movies of the creator who's horrified by his audience or whatever i i think that that was meant to be insightful and it doesn't really play well for me per se i don't think i I think you could do that in a way because as we both know about half the people who love these kind of movies are actually like mouth-breathing mutants you know so like i get it like there is a lot of fodder there but the film seemed too over the top to have anything interesting to say about horror fandom you know what i mean like it was like it just was a plot device. It wasn't actually interesting in any way. So, no, and the, and what to add like insult to injury was that they tried, um, they tried to kind of take this angle to make a commentary upon like violence in the media and like, are we a violent society because of the art we consume is inherently violent? And it was five minutes of verbal diarrhea that meant nothing. Right. It doesn't actually have a I don't think he actually has a perspective. I think it's just no, he doesn't. I think it's just meant to there as like a, a spicy element of the plot. And that's silly. it was a, it was a setup for the guy who was interviewing him to be like, My sister was one of the people that this guy killed. And it was supposed to be this big emotional moment and you're like, Yep, yeah, 
but we don't know enough about this guy to give a fuck about him. Well, he he's just a guy. Well, it's also a conflation of true crime and horror, right? Like, not that those things are unrelated, but um, to suggest that writing a fantasy comic book and writing a fantasy comic book based off of real murders are the same exact thing is ridiculous. And it doesn't actually help us talk about horror in general. And if you have an issue with true crime stuff, then do a movie about true crime. You know what I mean? Like, why add the fantasy horror element, specifically calling the comic book Slasher Man, uh, when, though they are related, the fan of the slasher movie is not necessarily the true crime person. And I say that as someone who doesn't particularly care about true crime. It's just not my genre. I don't think I have a moral bias against it the way that, you know, this movie has some characters do. But I just don't care about it. And so part of my thing was like, this is a weird conflation of two things. You know what I mean? Like one is about the pantomime or the representation of violence. And one is about actual violence. You know, like people who are covering actual death and not just making a silly comic book. And uh, that kind of precludes the movie from having any sort of like insightful perspective of any kind. Yeah. I can fuck with that. Uh, I also did something which I thought I had done before and I discovered I had not done. Uh, I attempted a revisit of a movie that I've actually never seen. And that is The Amityville Horror. You've never seen The Amityville Horror? I really thought I had. And as I'm watching it, I realized, bro, I've seen the sequels and I've seen the remake or I think it was a remake, right? Yeah, with Ryan Reynolds yeah, and uh, yeah. someone else. Yeah, but the original, I've seen it like I've seen clips of it used, and I've probably watched parts of it like on TV. But as I sat and watched the whole movie, I realized I had never sat and watched the whole. You know what I mean? I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but I'm like watching it in unedited in total, going, "There's no way I've sat through this whole movie before." I think I have because it's so prevalent in culture and I know I've watched like sections of it on TV like when the priest comes to bless the house and all the flies I've seen that scene like probably a bunch of I don't know how many times on TV but as I watch the whole movie I'm like I've never sat through this whole movie in my life ever Hmm. Um, didn't love it actually I thought I would really be into it and it's fine it's just not I I think for me um and this probably happens in a few of these kind of like uh, based on a true story haunting kind of movies. I don't find there's any. What's the term I want to use? It's not logic because these are events that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. But it is logic in that the weirdest thing that happens in a Lucio Fulci movie makes more sense to me, except for when the spider bites the guy's lip off, makes more sense to me than anything that happens in the Amityville Horror. Like, I just don't understand why we would think a ghost would do any of these things. Like, it just, none of it really, like, none of it scares me, really. I don't find it creepy or or horrifying in any way. I don't feel a sense of, like, uh, impending doom at all when I'm watching it. And I also don't get what, I'm like, okay, so if I'm in the house and I've, you know, like, I don't know, it's, it's an evil house and I'm an evil ghost or spirit or something and then I'm like yeah I'm just gonna I'm 
just going to squish this kid's fingers. I think that's a good use of it. I'm going <laughs> to squish this kid's fingers. And then like and then also like the anyone who's a Catholic in the house gets sick, but also like moon girl hippie lady got sick too and yeah. There's just all this stuff that just doesn't click for me and I don't get it and why it's scary or maybe not why it's scary. I don't think that's but like, you know, one of the big moments in the film is uh ghost stole some money. <laughs> ghost is like Oh, let me get that $1,500. Fuck you. Fuck your wedding. Yeah. Uh, Fuck you, James Brolin. It's weird, right? It's just not... Anyways, it, I don't want to come at it too hard. This is a movie that's very important for a lot of people. I'm well aware of that. I'm well aware that people love it. It's really important uh, for a lot of folks when it comes to like that era of horror. But watching it with fresh eyes in 2020... I didn't hate it. I it was it was definitely, you know, there was an entertainment value there, but I really thought it would hit me in a certain way because it's considered such a classic of the haunted house genre and I found it not that effective. It's a bit of a bummer. Uh <laughs> is your uh is your association with me and my unreasonable, very fucking loud criticism of the Warrens, do you think that affected it in any way? Are the Warrens in the movie? Did I miss the Warrens? They're not, but their fingerprints are like all over it. Yeah, I figured as much when... when there's things about it that remind me of a Warren-based tale, but I was waiting for them to show up. No, I don't think so, because they never show up, and because... I mean, this family never puts up a fight the way if this was like a, a a movie with the Warrens in it, then the Warrens have to actually have a superhero moment where they face off against the evil. And that never happens in the movie. So I didn't really I knew it was associated with them, but I never really like felt there. They weren't obviously there. So I didn't have that whatever against them. And I still love the first Conjuring. That's what to me, that is the er as much as this is the maybe the first I think it is the first, right? Like Warren based media. Yes. Uh it doesn't compare to the Conjuring. The Conjuring is no. the Avengers of the Warren movies. You know what I mean? Like that is the beginning. I'll still go to bat and, and say the scariest Amityville film is the first like fifteen minutes of the second Conjuring movie. It, it's so much better it's 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 so much more frightening and effective than the 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 um the the brolin john i i just i that movie i'm just like it's it's fine it's you know it's something i would put on like i, I think at a like a party you know having a halloween party in college you just put it on as like a movie to have sure, in the background right. you know what i mean it, it's not a movie you have to watch like well and i um, love margot kidder like i just think she's great so there's absolutely there's definitely yeah. that appeal there but yeah, it just doesn't hit, man. I just was really, I really was, uh, maybe I had too high an expectation if I had watched it without any, if it wasn't such a cultural film, like it's so like, you know, part of the, the zeitgeist in some way, maybe I would have yes. gone in with lower expectations and I would have had a better time with it. But it wasn't completely not entertaining, but nothing in it hit me. Probably the most effective moment is the house actually telling the priest to get out, which is like the corniest, most stepped on moment in the film. It was more effective than a lot of the other stuff that happens. I just was like, all right, this movie, it is what it is. You know, I, it's also, also the when moment, he, it's also, he goes back to get the dog. I like that part, too. Oh, when he goes back to get Harry. Yeah. I mean, it, it's also the thing is, is like that scene with the get out. That's the scene that like everybody has seen. So it's like, if you're going to see that part and be like, man, I got to fucking watch this movie. It's like, 
nah, man, you, you've seen the coolest part. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Like you just, you just, there's no reason to watch this movie. Uh, so two more things I want to hit on before we get to yours. Uh, this is sort of a, a slight plug for Cinema Smorgasbord. We don't cover a lot of horror on Cinema Smorgasbord. We have covered some, but not a ton. Uh, on our next episode, we're actually doing a, a horror double for our Cinema Fantastica uh, series. Uh, we picked two films that played at the 1991 Toronto International Film Festival Midnight Madness section. Those, okay. those movies are uh, Children of the Night. Okay. And The Borrower. Have you seen either one of these films? No. Oh, man. So they were a big hit at Midnight Madness, especially Children of the Night. People freaked out. And uh, what, one thing I discovered watching Children of the Night is that it is a Fangoria production. It's one of the few films that Fangoria put their money behind and put out. And it is a gooey, uh, squishy, uh, very violent vampire movie. I can fuck with that. Uh, in it... Uh, the vampires, the reason they can live forever is that when it's time to like uh you know recede for the for the for the daytime, they actually like excrete a whole sack that they live in and then spit their lungs out and the lungs like breathe for them while they're in the sack. It's so gross. Mm-hmm. But it's awesome. weirdly biologically unnecessary and complicated. But I'm intrigued. Well, they also uh, this the the head vampire dude. He has these children that he feeds off of that he's been feeding off of forever because they live in water. So they are under the water, and he preserves them as this as his like undead blood bags, and he's been feeding off them for like ever. It's it's crazy. It's a really weird. It's very. I will say it's from 1991. It's very 90s in the sense of. Um, there's a few moments of excessive ex- exposition because there's so many more moments of uh, car crash, running, fighting vampires, car crash, running. Yes. And so they have to get what little story there is squished into very short scenes. Uh, I don't love that kind of filmmaking, but there's something so nostalgic about that as a, like a 90s way to do a movie that I really kind of dug it anyway. It was, it was a lot of fun, actually. And then the other movie, The Borrower, is... Uh, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. You've seen The Hidden, right? Oh, yeah, with Kyle MacLachlan? Yeah. Uh, so this is like a gory version of The Hidden where um, uh, being put on Earth is not an escape plan. It's a punishment. So this alien psycho killer, he's basically a uh, mass murderer from space. His punishment is to be made human and put on Earth. But right before they drop him off, they make it clear the de-evolution process isn't stable, so he might have some issues. And so what ends up happening is if he gets too hurt, his head explodes of his human body, and his what's left of him as an alien has to crawl into a new body. I can fuck with that. It's weird. It's super gory. And it's kind of funny. It's It literally feels at times like very much similar to The Hidden, but it has a lot of humor and a lot of weird blood and stuff. Like, it's it's very gooey. Uh, I liked it. It wasn't, like, amazing, but it was very fun. Uh, and, and I will say the one thing that's weird is I got really stoked because it's set in Chicago, and I was like, oh, awesome, Chicago movie. And then as I'm watching, I'm like, man, there's a lot of stuff here I don't recognize. Maybe this is, like, I should go on, like, a like a tour, like how Justin Lore would do and find the, the shooting locations, and that'll help me get to know... <laughs> That'll help me help me get to know Chicago better. And then I looked up the movie on Wikipedia. On, on IMDb, it just says, shooting location, Chicago. 
on not on IMDb on um what was it? Oh, America Genre Film Archive, AGFA. They have an article about it. And they in that article said, actually, none of it was filmed in Chicago, even though it's set in Chicago. All their permits and shit fell through, and they had to move to L.A. in the last second. So the whole movie's actually shot in L.A., and none of it's in Chicago. So I was like, oh, that's why none of it's familiar. Because <laughs> it's actually entirely filmed in Los Angeles. But that was a, bu- that was a bit of a bummer, actually. But whatever. Um, do you know who directed The Borrower? Uh, the gentleman who directed Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, and he references it in the movie twice. There's a Henry poster, and then while another uh, horrifying killer character uh, murders, or doesn't murder, but assaults a female police officer, there's a commercial for Henry in the background, and it's very upsetting. <laughs> That's kind of awesome, though. Also upsetting. But yeah, so uh, that'll be on next week's Cinema Smorgasbord, uh, so check that out. And if you've never seen those films, I, I actually recommend them both. They're not masterpieces, but they were a lot of fun. I can fuck with that. Is that anything else you... Uh... That's all I got. I have done next to nothing. The only thing I've done involving horror movies is last week I went to the Mahoning Drive-In to see Night of the Living Dead. I'm assuming that was great as usual. Of course. Very uplifting. I felt very good after leaving. I... You know, it was I just at the very end, just one single tear of joy just went. And just, you know, I just things are going to be okay. Every everything is fine. It's a real, it's a real heartwarming film. It really is. Oh, also on Friday, um, not anything too crazy. Uh, my mom and I, we were supposed to take my niece to go this this weekend. To Becky's for the uh, a double feature of it and it chapter two, but then my niece had to go to her dad's, so my mom was like, "Do you just want to go anyway?" And I was like, "Sure, I'll go to the fucking movies with my mom." So we went and saw it, and it was the first time she's is the second time she's only ever seen it, and it's the first time I've watched it in a while. Um, I I still enjoy that movie, the first one I left before the chapter two because you know, yeah, but um. Yeah, it's 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 still got it. It's still I still had a good time watching that movie. I'm glad. So I guess we could take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about 1931's adaption of Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats, rats, thousands, millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, 
and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dear? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. And we are back to talk about 1931's uh, supernatural horror film, Dracula, directed by motherfucking Todd Browning. In case you didn't know, did a movie called Freaks and another movie called London After Midnight. I hear that one's great. I've never seen it. No one has. It's a lost film. Is that really true? Yes. Yeah, there's, there's uh, about 45 minutes of footage that they reconstructed from it. But yeah, it's 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 largely considered to be like the most famous lost film of all time. Whoa! I mean, you all know like the images from it. It's very iconic, like Lon Chaney looking like a fucking monster person. But yeah, the movie itself, like I said, there's like I think forty five, fifty minutes of it that that were actually saved. But yeah, I don't feel that we have to explain what this movie's about. You're, wait, you're suggesting that people know. About Dracula? I know. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, I think you're right. Hey, the movie's about Dracula. If you've never seen the movie, but you're obviously familiar with Dracula, it's different from the book in several notable ways, right? Uh, yeah. I just can't see there's someone being who's read the book Dracula and never seen the movie. Oh, I know lots of people who haven't. I, I would actually suggest I know more people who've read the book now than have seen the movie. Really interesting. Uh, I think in our community, if you are already a horror person and you're of the opinion that black and white doesn't work for you, I think that gets looked out on a little bit. But among the general population, there's really a feeling of like, why would I watch anything not in color? Mm. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I, I think, again, and it's also an age thing. I think younger people may be required to read Dracula for school now. It's like one of those texts that I've seen assigned in high school and college, but then choose never to watch the movie, you know? Interesting. It's from what I, I've never read the book, but from what I've read about the book, it's a it's not an easy read, is it? No, I... I uh, it's... First of all, it's not a straight novel. It's like a collection of various media. You know what I mean? Like there's letters and it's not like a, just a straight narrative, you know? And it's not like great expectations is what you're saying. Uh, um, I also think it's it's a weird uh, Dracula is weird. I think it's got weird gender stuff going on. There's weird stuff around sexuality and shame. There's I don't know. I I just think it's very different. And, and some of the stuff we assume is there is not. Like, you know, anyone who's seen, I think if you've seen um, the, this is the Dracula probably more people have actually seen, is the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. The better Dracula. Well, <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, in in this Dracula that we're talking about, the Todd Browning one, is they don't really talk about Dracula as like a daywalker or uh, they don't really bring in the like whole like uh, 
ancient lust for Mina. You know what I mean? Like, no, th- this this is. Uh, I don't want to go off on a tangent about Coppola's Dracula because I honestly do love that movie, and I think the one thing that like one of the things that like hooks you right away in that movie is that in this movie he's just a fucking weird old guy who hangs out in a castle and fucking vamps around, no pun intended, uh, talking about wolves and all this shit. And that's all you know about him, really. Um, The one thing that the Coppola Dracula has for me is that there's the sort of historical context to it. You know, that he was this warrior who was fighting the heathen Turks and defending Christendom in Europe, and uh, it was all for nothing. And then he became a vampire because he renounced God and vowed that he would rise from death with all the powers of darkness at his disposal, which is... Pretty fucking cool. This movie has none of that. Well, I think it's worth mentioning that this movie is more of an adaptation of the play than it is of the book. And the play had already redacted a bunch of that. And that was partly why um, Bela Lugosi. Yes. He was already famous for playing Dracula in the play. Yeah, yeah, And so that's partly why he was so iconic in this role. He was already well-known. And was sort of considered an aging sex symbol, which might be hard for us to understand right now. But at the time, I, granted, he he it was remarked a little bit when this movie came out that he was, you know, obviously getting a little older. But he was still considered like really fucking hot, and that a lot of people went to see this movie not just because you know they wanted to see a scary movie. He was considered hot. Like, that was part of the point of the film. And the film really rests on that idea that he's this compelling, sexy, maybe a little bit older man. And uh, for me, and probably for you, it's hard to keep that in mind because I don't think of him that way at all. Like, even a little bit. Well, there was a... I think we might have talked about this um, recently... There was a bit of a feud between him and Boris Karloff because, yep. like, Kar- Karloff realized, like, I'm getting up there in years. I should probably branch out into different roles and start doing different things. Whereas, like, Lugosi was like, I am horny forever. <laughs> well, and he was also disrespectful to Karloff. Like, he really didn't think that Karloff was great. And, I, I mean, not that that wasn't a two-way street, but at least in the, uh, based on what we have available in quotes and interviews, Lugosi like openly dissed Karloff more than Karloff openly dissed Lugosi. Um, Whack. Yeah, it's it's not great, and especially because like quite honestly, there are so many more memorable Karloff performances for my taste. Now, granted, some people might disagree because they've seen things I haven't. But for me, there are other Boris Karloff performances that i think are memorable and i don't have a treasure trove of lugosi things i care about yeah so i mean that just is what it is like i'm not you know no uh, i'm not trying to dishonor the man's memory but it is crazy to it's one of the weirder uh rivalries you could have i will say for those people who want to know more about that rather than listen to this podcast for that info uh check out uh you must remember this the karina longworth history of hollywood podcast she does uh i think it's like seven episodes on the uh relationship and rivalry between bella lugosi and 
Boris Karloff. It's not just about the rivalry. It's also about their careers and about how their careers sort of tell the story of Hollywood. But it's very good, uh, if a little sad. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there there was like a... I mean, because they did... How many movies together? You know, there was definitely like a... I guess like a... They weren't quite the Corys, but uh, I don't know. I mean, the Corys love each other. I, I, I assume since one of the Corys is still making movies about the abuse the other Corys suffered, even in 2020. Uh, True. That feels like they're actually connected, you know, even if there might have been a slight rivalry there. Um, well, let's just talk about. So you said this earlier, but these are you. These are the two Universal monster movies you you like, right? Uh, yeah, this movie, uh, I'm just going to cut to the chase. This movie, the reason I I actually like this movie um, is I think Dwight Fry as Renfield is one of the scariest things I've ever seen in any film ever. Sure. Um, it, something about his performance is so fucking unsettling and manic and genuine. Um, it's like watching, it's like I imagine being in a room with him when he was acting like that. It's like, how can I say? Okay, um, in my line of work, it hasn't happened often, but there have been times where I've been in a room with people where I didn't know what they were going to do. Like, people have come into my shop, and I've had to be like, you're acting a little inappropriate. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And I didn't know what they were going to do. Okay, but to, to bring it back into the horror realm, um, he's like the hitchhiker from Texas Chainsaw. Where you're like, what the fuck is this guy gonna do? He there's just there's just this this frenzied energy that he has that is so so dialed in and 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 just so terrifying that he he just he he looks like this like like that scene uh, I I tweeted about this on the Hard Business Twitter when they find the ship where everyone's like dead on it and then they just like open the hold. And fucking Dwight Fry is just like standing at the bottom, looking up, just grinning like a killer. It, it, I I don't know. There there's just a lot of imagery with him in it that is. It, I don't. It just brings this intensity that the rest of this movie kind of lacks. You know, it's like I I actually watched the Coppola Dracula a few days ago, and like Tom Waits as Renfield is is. I mean, it's Tom Waits, so you know, enough said. But. I don't know. There's just, and it's always, as long as I can remember, like seeing this movie, like even when I was a little kid, when I first saw it, I was like, yeah, you know, the Dracula is, is I ah, scare the children of the night. And then you see the wives of Dracula, like, ah, the wives of Dracula. And then like, you know, all that stuff. But like, there's just something about Dwight Fry in this movie that just chills me. And his performance is so, it's so there. And just, he has it up to 11 the whole time. It's just, I don't know, like, like a not shitty Cletus Cassidy is is how I would describe it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's important to note for people that the Renfield character also has uh, aspects that are clearly supposed to be Jonathan Harker. Yeah, they they combine the two, um, they combine the characters. But isn't there a Jonathan because- Harker in the movie too? That's just less interesting. There is, but he's not like he's okay. So like, 
he's in the movie, but he's not like a. They only meet Harker, like, I would say, like halfway to a quarter way of the movie, when like the story. I, and again, I've never read the book, so I don't know. But I've heard that Coppola's version is a more faithful adaption to the book. Is that the film kicks off when Harker is sent to Transylvania to conclude the business with Dracula that Renfield started and couldn't because he quote unquote suffered uh, fucking consumption or whatever, whatever weird shit. No, I mean he's cr- he's crazy. He's he's in a in the book. He's in a mental asylum. We never see him out of the asylum. And he just senses Dracula is there because he's a crazy man who eats insects. So he just gets to know that Dracula exists. Yeah. Um, but no, they, they like Harker is kind of like a, like a non-entity in this movie, I think. It is really surprising to me watching it because as a kid, I didn't know anything about the book. Uh, I've read the book. I don't remember a lot of it. It is kind of hard to read because a lot of it is in like newspaper article, articles and notes and letters and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I've probably watched a million adaptations now. And rewatching this, I was really struck by the amount of space that Renfield takes up. Like, he really is so much more interesting than Harker. And Harker really just exists in the film to be um, a foil. He's really just there to be the upset Englishman. Everything is upsetting. And he kind of moves the plot forward that his, in a way, this film is even more about this thing that I've talked about where a lot of times horror films, the skeptical character is meant to represent how foolish our own sense of like modern superiority is. Like way past the point where it logically makes sense the Jonathan Harker Harker character in this movie is acting like like nothing weird is going on, you know, yeah, and thus basically gets Mina you know in trouble. Like it's it's his inability to like catch on. Even when Van Helsing is there, they I mean at one point in the movie they see that Dracula doesn't cast an image in the fucking mirror, and Harker's still like, well, this is all quite strange, but we mustn't lose our heads. <laughs> and you're like. Bro, it's he's a vampire. Like it's it's getting ridiculous now that you can't accept that he's a vampire. Like what's going on? Especially because you know, it is set long enough ago. It's not set in 1930s. It's set you know, some time ago when you're like, come on, some people believed in vampires, right? Like they hadn't totally moved on from this idea yet, you know? So No. It's just it's just funny. The character is so less interesting than uh, you know, by comparison, I won't act like I'm an expert on the novel, but uh, by comparison, Johnny Depp's character in the Coppola version is like, you know, uh, in some ways the protagonist, you know, which is, the you know. Uh, it's Keanu Reeves. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Keanu Reeves. My bad. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like, even though the story is about Dracula, he's really the person that like moves the movie along for you as the audience member. You're like attached to him um and in this uh he's kind of just annoying you know he does the the movie kind of focuses on uh the relationship between dracula and renfield for for a while before we get to uh merry old england and that's just interesting it was an interesting decision yeah i mean this movie isn't entirely really all that compelling to me outside of dwight fry 
Um, and I get that there's a lot of iconic imagery involved. And it introduces a lot of iconic characters. It's just... It just doesn't seem... Uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. It doesn't seem that it's like... I don't know. I don't know. I think this is a stretch for you in general. This kind of movie yeah. is a stretch for you. Uh, I, I will say, I still... Even though I don't get the sex appeal of Mr. Lugosi, I still think his performance is iconic, and I get why the close-ups of his eyes with the light on his eyes was like affecting for people. I get that. I feel that. Um, I think for this kind of film, uh, for my taste, I don't really like this style of filmmaking, and yet I find this movie pretty uh, engaging. I think part of that is um, the set design is part of the filmmaking here in a very interesting way, in a way that flirts with like, uh, I don't know, something like German Impressionism or something. You know what I mean? Like the the, uh, yeah, the, at the times, things in the I, castle and stuff are pretty amazing. I was going to say, especially like the weird catacombs where yeah. it's just this vast empty room yeah. with three caskets in it. I think a lot and of that armadillos? is really beautiful stuff, really haunting stuff. Yes. Um, I, 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 you know, the dialogue style is hard for me, uh, and that is an issue for me with a lot of 30s films, but especially in this film, it's a little stilted. But as you said, Renfield is really compelling. Uh, I don't actually mind Mina. I, I wish she had a little more texture, but I'm not surprised that she doesn't. I kind of like sassy Van Helsing. Van Helsing in this movie is not the obsessive psychopath that I think he is in other formats, including, I think, the story. But like I said, I haven't read it since I was a kid, so I could be wrong about that. This is the only Van Helsing I've ever seen that he's kind of just a sassy, curious guy who's like, I don't know, Dracula, I think you're a vampire. And Yeah, like, I when, when he shows that. him that, I, I, I love when he shows him that box and he's like, hey, Dracula, I've made the most amazing discovery. And you're like, what the fuck? And Dracula's like, well, let me see. And he opens it and it's a mirror. And Dracula just slaps it out of his hand. I was just like, who, why, why did Renfield, like, or not Renfield, why did, like, Van Helsing, like, I know I'm going to get this guy, tell him to look in his fucking box, it's going to blow his mind. I mean, it does, though. Like, that's the thing, is that I was also thinking, like, man, couldn't he have done that in a more subtle way, and they could have trapped him? He does it, and literally Dracula's just like, well, uh, uh, there you go, I, I'm discovered, Van Helsing can fill you in, I'll see you guys later. It just leaves. <laughs> and, and there's like, yeah. I mean, to me, there are, the elements hmm. there are certain plot elements that don't work well and they don't because they're so clearly adapted from the stage play so like on stage what else are you going to do you're not going to have a big vampire battle that's not going to work you know like what how else do you do this for him to be discovered and just say i'm out van helsing can fill you in is like pretty actually i'm sure effective for a stage play it's only the fact that we're watching a movie that we're sitting there going that's it that's all they're going to do they're not going to do more of a thing um that being said again I, I once they leave i think a lot of the stuff in the garden is great i think um as you said uh the the renfield stuff is great the catacombs but even that shot of him coming down those crazy steps with her at his uh, at his abbey, I guess it's not a castle, but you know what I mean? Basically a castle. Uh, yes. Is visually stunning. And, and knowing that 
that was a huge set that someone had to build and they set up because they knew it would be a haunting image. You know what I mean? Like, I love that. I think that's great. I, I think all that is really, really interesting. I will say to say like, well, but it's not that scary or compelling is almost unfair for me because uh, for my taste, almost nothing from this time period is going to be that, you know, like I find parts of, uh, of going way back. I find parts of Hoxon creepy, you know? Uh, yeah. And I really love the characterization in Bride of Frankenstein and I've loved creature from the black lagoon since I was a kid, you know, but that's about it. That's like my whole list. So it's like, uh, yeah, this, what they were doing in movies when this came out, it's just not my favorite stuff. But for what it is, it's one of the more compelling things I've seen. And, and I think a lot of that is both the performances and then, you know, I say the set design, but what I mean is the set design compiled with the shot composing. You know, like the, the missing scene is like, there are parts that I just think are really magical and really iconic. It's just, it's just not the sort of thing that I'm going to be about, you know, much the way that like, uh, you know, we probably, we probably wouldn't have a lot of the music that we love if it wasn't for like British pub rock. But that doesn't mean I'm going to go and buy a bunch of British pub rock records necessarily. Oh yeah. I'm not going to start listening to fucking budgie. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, I I could do like Rose tattoo as a Australian equivalent or whatever, but that's about it. You know? Yeah, and I still don't like uh, the old Akadaka. It's not really my thing. <laughs> okay. That's what Australian people call ACDC. Akadaka. <laughs> Love that. Anyways, but you know what I mean? Like, um, it, it is a, an er text in a very important way, but I don't compare it to, for me, a foundational thing of my taste is like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like, okay, well, that's just not a fair comparison. They're just so utterly different. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Does I any of that you. make sense? Makes sense to me, yeah. I will say the movie does not have, you know, one of the one of the biggest sort of cottage industries in modern uh, academia is to have some reading of Dracula. You know, it's about colonialism it's about disease it's about homosexuality it's about this that and the other and i don't disagree with any of those if if you're willing to dig that deeply into this text i already think you're giving it more credit than it deserves and honestly if if one of these older horror sources is more compelling i think mary shelley's frankenstein is way more a compelling read than than dracula but that's just my taste uh that being said um the film doesn't feel to me to have almost any of that subtext. If that subtext is there and these folks aren't just like making it up to have something to write about for their, their dissertation, which I really don't think they are. I think that stuff is probably there in some sense. Um, it doesn't feel that present in the movie. And, and maybe that's just my inability to have some context for the, for the movie and some context for why it's, haunting like i i get why it's haunting in a very abstract sense but what was it about this movie that it played so gangbusters in the 1930s like this movie was huge it was like one of the first big cultural phenomena. you know what i mean like maybe not as big as like uh unfortunately birth of a nation but i'm just saying you think birth of a nation was bigger than dracula 
Um, well, one of them got played at the White House by the president to great praise, and the other one is called Dracula. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think, um, I think that uh, unfortunately, uh, yeah, Birth of the Nation was was a pretty big deal to a lot of people. Unfortunately, um, but I would say that Dracula made more money because there were more movie theaters and people were more accustomed to going to movies, and that was a thing. It was much more a part of the culture. Uh, and what was it about Dracula that rang so true for people that like, I mean, obviously some of it was the play was popular, but the movie was a huge deal. Like it was a massive thing, not just again over time. I mean, at when it came out. So like, why, what, what was it that resonated for those audiences? I I'd love to know. I'm sure you could find writing at the time uh, about it and about, you know, it's not like, film criticism started in the 80s like somebody was writing about this movie but um i haven't read anything so i just find it i I just wonder what it was that people were so obsessed with other than of course that many people wanted to fuck bella lugosi okay (laughs) i mean that was part of it people wanted to fuck bella lugosi like he 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 got he got uh he got attention for this movie long after it came out when it comes to the ladies Probably the pro- probably the fellas too, actually. But uh, oh yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, did you hear about Bela Lugosi? What's that? He's dead. Oh man, the whitewashed tombs and other lines in that song. I don't remember. <laughs> speaking of a speaking of a better Jack or better vampire movie, The Hunger, huh? How about that? We'll, there we'll you have, go. Yeah, we'll have to cover that soon. No, I mean, I, I, you know, this is. I think it's worth saying that we are not experts on the movie Dracula because there are folks for whom this is like one of the most important movies ever and they've written probably millions of words about it and my feeling is like oh that was pretty good for a 1930s horror movie this is pretty good I mean it, it, okay here's the thing since we're doing two universal movies I feel it's we, we can we can dive into other universal properties I don't understand the insane amount of ink that has been spilled over this movie when you have a film like Frankenstein that has a lot more to say. Philosophically, um, the background is that it was written by a woman, you know, arguably as men were trying to keep her from writing it. Like, she made a... She created a literary classic out of spite, which is incredible. But I think there is a lot of talk about the book. I think the thing with the movie is the movie feels like, for a lot of folks, a different phenomena than the book in some ways because there are noticeable, important differences. Yeah, I suppose. I just... um, Like, I understand the idea of the vampire as a sexual being. And I understand the idea of, like... That culturally as inherently like a manifestation of sexuality and lust and whatever. For this movie specifically, again, I'm willing to admit that maybe it was just because um, I look at Bela Lugosi and I'm like, you're just an old dude, like a horny old guy. And I never, I wasn't, I didn't get to see him in his, his prime. I don't know. I just don't see this movie as 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for as uh, endemic, I guess, of 
the horniness that often gets attached to it. I I wish I could have more to say about that. I know that it's a fact from writing at the time and from the history of the response to the movie. That's fine. But I That's don't. That's fine. I, just, I, I, I mean, on a personal level, no, I don't know what's... He's handsome, I guess. He has a funny accent. They look at his eyes. He's got intense eyes and he can raise his eyebrow. But like... Yeah, no, I don't. I don't necessarily get it either. I, I guess I want to say something, not in defense of it, but talking about it because it's so significant for so many people. And I know that there are people who are going to listen to this episode and be like, "Wow, I can't believe they're like dissing Dracula." But it's not like that. It's like it's, it is. Um, we we have both, whether we wanted to or not, been wrapped in the ripples of this cultural moment. Dracula has reverberated out <laughs> over the past what is it now 90 years right this movie uh yeah it came out in 31 yeah. so 89 yeah 89 years living in the shadow of bell lugosi and other than like you know a general of her vampire movies and a really sick bauhaus song I don't get it. I don't know why we are in this particular shadow. I think I have a little more appreciation for it than than you do, but not enough to justify the weight of it all. And, you know, maybe that's silly. Maybe that's how uh Gen Z feels about Freddy or some shit. I don't fucking know. But the the but but you know what I mean? Like the point is is that um this is just one of those times when th- this feels arbitrary. It feels arbitrary that this movie, even more than its fellow Universal Monster movies, has had such an enduring impact. And I'm sure there are listeners, again, if you're one of our listeners who feels like we're crazy and this movie is, it it should be even more important than it is, let us know about that. Because it, it just feels like a bridge too far to me to understand the weight of this film. Agreed. Let's talk about the other movie because I think we both like it a lot more. Yes, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about 1953? Four. Four. 1954, uh, a movie that I've met, I met Rico Browning, the guy who played the creature underwater, so that was pretty cool. We're going to talk about the creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, I know a lot of people were hyped that we were talking about this, because a lot of people that we associate with have great taste. And, um, yeah, we'll be right back. couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon, a throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. And we are 
are back to talk about 1954's black and white 3D monster horror film from Universal International, produced by William Eland, directed by Jack Arnold. That's a name. And starring Richard Carlson, Julie Adams, Richard Denning, Antonio Marano, Nestor Paiva, and Whit Bustle. And the creature was played by Ben Chapman on land and by motherfucking Rico Browning underwater. Uh... This was the movie that when I first saw Monster Squad and I saw the Gill Man in that and I was like, I need to know more about that guy. Like, he is the one I want to know more about. And ah, this, this, rewatching this movie last night, I was just fucking blown away by by how much I still love this. You know, and it's like, you know, when I was a kid, I kind of like, liked all the Universal Monster movies, but this is the only one that's really withstood the test of time. That's interesting. And, you know, the older I get, the more I, the more I can appreciate, like, some of the more, like, not undertones, and not, like, because su- this movie is not a fucking subtle movie. None of the subtleties of the films, but some of the themes um, I've picked up on, and little like technical details that I've noticed that that just went over my head when I was a child. Uh, so what what was your first exposure to this movie? This was actually the first um, Universal Monster movie I saw, and I had a poster of it when I was a kid. One of my oldest posters that I only probably threw away maybe like five years ago. I had it since I was, you know, five years old you know no shit oh yeah it's been in my room since then it was like my first horror thing which is so funny because i always talk about seeing um uh nightmare on elm street and that was my first horror movie but that's because as a kid i just thought this was like a fun movie i didn't really think of it as like a horror movie the way that i came to think of other horror movies but i yeah i loved it so much and it's really funny for me because this kind of movie, the 50s sci-fi monster movie, is perhaps even further outside of my taste than Dracula. Dracula at least has some like weird artistic choices that, you know, not as compelling as Freaks, but has some stuff going on. Um, the general vibe for me with 50s sci-fi monster movies is like nothing could be more boring in my brain. And yet, <laughs> I've liked this since I was a kid. And I I like the monster. I like the visuals. Um, I will say, on rewatch, I realized that part of the magic of this movie is that those underwater shots, man. Yes. They are. And, and I'm, it's so simple. You know, it's just a, a, a tank in Florida, a lady swimming, a dude in a suit underneath. And they have the insight that the suit has to give off bubbles so you kind of feel like he's breathing. That's it. And yet the way it's shot, the way it's worked into the film, those edits and all that stuff, it is entirely compelling. All the underwater stuff. It just makes the movie that much more interesting. Plus, it doesn't help that, you know, it moves at a good pace. Uh, the creature on land is also pretty compelling. And even though the the acting is definitely a, a bit on the 50s sci-fi side, um, yeah. it never falls into pure... Some of these movies can just be a bunch of people saying a bunch of words they don't know what they mean that are just in the script. You know what I mean? 
yeah. And this movie never falls into that. It always is like just enough um, reality that I'm I'm in with them. And and really the 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 dynamic between the the two men, the you know the the for you know formerly partners, now they're at odds over this issue of you know can they monetize this monster or not? It's like really interesting. I don't I don't know it. it it still plays so so well, and I was uh, perhaps part of the reason I was less patient with Dracula is because I did not expect Creature from the Black Lagoon to still be as interesting as it is. It 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 still works for me. I'm not saying it works for a 50s sci-fi horror movie. I'm saying it's just good, and it's just amazing. It's so good because I usually don't like this kind of movie. If that makes sense. No, I mean, it, it definitely does. It's, um, you know, because one of the things I was worried about was like, do I like this movie only because I liked it so much when I was little? But then I was watching it, and like I said, I was picking up on shit that I missed when I was a kid. Um, you know, I think, I, I think we'll, I'll just get my only real problem with this, with this movie that I have, like, out of the way, is that a film like this could very easily slip into wise indigenous person tropes where they this shit is happening and then they could very easily have like a native guide be like as a child i heard many stories about the demon who lived in the black lagoon which does happen about three quarters of the way through the movie after they've established what this thing actually is so it's like they have all the answers and it's just like uh they're just talking to like their native guide and he's like, yeah, that being said, we could probably kill it with this like chemical that we dump in the water to kill fish. Uh, so I'm, I was like pleasantly surprised that they avoided that. Uh, what I didn't like about this movie is that it's despite the fact that the creature only goes for like Julie Adams, like at the very, very end, like it only goes after her. I think there might be like 10 minutes left in the movie this film is like marketed as like a woman in peril from this like other. And the fact that it's set like in the jungle and there's these brawny white men and it's this beautiful white woman being like attacked by this like subhuman beast. There's a little, it's not like explicit, but there's a little, there's a little bit of the touch of like women in peril from like black people vibes. I mean, it's no King Kong, but it's no, no, it's certainly no King Kong, but it's, it's there. I will say, um, I think that's a, a little bit unfair, only to the extent that, in a sense, that's kind of what every 50s sci-fi horror movie is about. Even yeah. if it's not so much racialized. Like, this is, I think you're right, because of the jungle context, and the they make it really clear that the uh, Spanish-speaking characters are somewhat different than the white folks. They want to remind you that you're dealing with two different groups of people in the film, by having that angle, it could be a very sort of racialized thing. I think it's not as strong as it could be. Uh, and like I said, all these 50s sci-fi horror movies, I mean, this is part of why, besides what I find to be just intolerable scripts, just scripts that make me want to die, the other part I don't like about these movies is all of the scariness is always just about the other, right? It's always about yes. an invading force or something. Occasionally, it's like, Oh no, we fucked up nature. But that's like such a small slither, you know, the few options there or whatever. So this one of like, okay, there's this ancient thing 
and we have discovered that it's still here. This tie to the past aspect. I just think there's a that's a little more interesting than some of the other ones I've seen. But I think you're right. Um, I mean, to be fair, he only goes after her literally towards the end. He is fascinated by her earlier in the film. Oh yeah, there's that there's that scene of the, of her swimming on the surface, like doing the freestyle, right. and he's swimming under her. It's just this. It's a fucking beautiful scene. It's, the it's way unbelievable. It's, shot, it's unbelievable. It is. It is. It is like a dream. It's so. I mean, this like that scene specifically. Uh, apparently is what inspired Guillermo del Toro to write The Shape of Water. Is he saw that scene right. and was just like... Well, he pitched The Shape of Water as a remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, and Universal was huh, not interested, and uh, we we saw how that turned out. They were fucking wrong. Jokes and he on was, them. He was fucking right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another like kind of weird thing I liked about this movie is the way... It, well, first off, it's like strangely pro-science. Like... Horror movies in this era, and I'm thinking of the Howard Hawks thing from another world, like, the thing I never liked about those movies is that, like, shit will be going down. There's, like, a scientist who's like, I have an idea what's going down, and then the military's just like, fuck off, we're gonna blow this thing up. Like, we don't need to know why it's... It is what it is. Like, who gives a shit? Um, This movie, though, is, like, there's a lot of, like, we need to do this so we can understand it. We need to do this because, like, we're going to go down there and find these rocks that like, we can ascertain the age of the fog. And there's all these, like, like the scientists are never portrayed as uh, weaklings. Like, there is a lot of, like, brute, stupid masculinity in this movie, but that's never used to, like, nullify the, the intellectualism in this movie, which, again, is, is kind of a rare thing for films from this era. Well, and I also like the idea that... <clears throat> And maybe this will play weird for some audiences, but I think if you think about it, it makes sense. Um, for the one scientist, this is a wild animal. So, like, as soon as it's clear that this thing is dangerous, right, one of them is like, well, we'll just kill it, and then we're done here. And the other one's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would we kill it? And I think for some audiences that might be confusing, but for this scientist, he's thinking of this thing as, like, just a predator they haven't discovered yet. Like, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. in the same way, like if there was a new kind of lion that you've never seen before and you're like, well, the lion ate one of our dudes. It's like, yeah, well, we're in lion land and lions eat things here. So, you know, fuck you. You know, like we don't we don't get to yeah, kill yeah. it, especially when they only have evidence of one. So it doesn't make sense to kill it because then there's no more left. That is so compelling to me as I'm watching it. You know, I, I think when I was a kid, I just thought like. Oh, where there's the angry guy and there's the soft guy, and neither one of them is right. And now watching as an adult, I'm like, well, I mean, they both make mistakes, but it's pretty clear, like, in the name of science, we can't kill something. We don't know what it is, because, like, this might be it. This is, might be our one chance. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. As an adult, I found that really interesting and, and really intelligent, again, for a movie. I don't want to say from this time period. It's not like people in the 50s were all anti-science or something like that but as you said for this genre usually this genre of film scientists are just there to be a reminder that we're doing this wrong but they don't really have any compelling personality and that's not the case in this film yeah i mean and not it's worth pointing out that not only is is, is, were scientists oftentimes portrayed as like these effeminate uh just completely useless personalities but this was also the time of like has man gone too far and right. like in this movie, they're just like, it, there's none of that. It, it's just like, it's, 
it's like exploration for the sake of exploration, which, you know, is a little colonialism, especially right. since this takes place in Brazil. Um, but no. It, well, it, and, it, and, it, and let's be clear, like in the 50s, there was a lot of reason to that people should have been worried about what science was doing. But in these films, it's always just about the idea that like we're questioning God and never about <laughs> and never about the idea of like. Yeah. We're using science just to make money because capitalism is bad. That's never there. And in this movie, if you're listening for it, there is some mild anti-capitalism. The asshole in the movie is an asshole for money. He's not just trying to prove how big his blonde dick is. He also yes. wants to make money. Now, I'm not saying yep. the writers of The Creature of Black Lagoon are anti-capitalists, but I think oftentimes people, when they're writing something that's you know, oh, what's up with this guy? Oh, he's a greedy asshole. If you think that through, you can say, yeah, he's a greedy asshole because it's true. If you find something no one's ever seen before and you murder it, you could still get rich. You know, that could still be yeah. your meal ticket, which is one of the reasons capitalism sucks. So, like, like, that part really works for me, and it's more insightful than a movie in which, like, oh, these scientists did something horrible because scientists just do something horrible because they don't fear God. And it's like, you know what? In the 50s, a lot of scientists did a lot of horrible things and they did them for profit so someone could make yeah. money and then kids got cancer. But guess what? That wasn't because they doubted the Lord. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like it, it, there was this weird, um, you know, I, I guess like quasi-Lovecraftian thing where it was like knowledge for knowledge's sake is evil. And it's like, well, n no, it just ushers in a whole new era of people trying to monetize that. And then that just unleashes fucking untold misery upon people because, you know, money isn't real, but it's insanely harmful. Uh, another weird thing that they talk about how they want to find this creature is like when they find the fossil of the fucking hand, which is strangely enough, like, scary to me like there's just something with the hand reaching out of the rock that even as an adult i'm like slightly like oh that's i don't like that they, they shouldn't show that anymore is when they're talking about the applications that they could use by uh you know figuring out what this thing is so they can use its biology and to understand how it evolved so that they can figure out how uh human beings could adapt to like if they would go to some distant planet with like different pressure, because they always talk about like the great pressure this thing must exist. Like, not like pressure like, oh man, my job sucks. Like I live under the ocean and fucking working in the ocean bank, my boss is an asshole. But like actual like pressure on the bottom of the ocean um, and how to breathe in like a different medium uh, that might be good for people to know when we go explore these other planets, which is this weird like transhumanism, like fucking Warren Ellis bullshit, but... I'm okay with that. Well, and to be fair, I think the people who write it off haven't seen it. I don't know that many people who have actually watched this movie and are like, oh, this is stupid creature from the Black Lagoon. It is very effective. And I, in, in a way that um, I would put this in the category of pieces of art, right, that um, whose children are not worthwhile, you know? Like, that this movie is a phenomenon, and I think after it, a lot of people probably tried to ape what this movie accomplished, and those are mostly bad. And and if you see this film and you think, whoa, that was 
really interesting and compelling and fun and and cheesy. It's corny. There are some cheesy, corny elements, but that can be part of the flavor that you enjoy. Uh, if you see this and then you think, well, I guess I need to find every 50 sci-fi creature feature, let me go ahead and say, oh, there's, there's some diamonds in that rough. Don't get me wrong. This isn't the only one that's good. But the best, I mean, honestly, the best sci-fi, you know, or not sci-fi so much, horror creature features from this era, I do think are the creature from the Black Lagoon movies. And um, <laughs> I guess we'll just say this, because uh, I keep feeling awkward and I can feel like it pressing down on me. Uh, we're re-recording part of this right now. So <laughs> if I repeat myself, I'm sorry. Uh, one of the things that's always charmed me about the creature is, especially in the last film, in... Um, in Revenge of the Creature, the movie ends when they set them on fire because they're assholes. And in The Creature Walks Among Us, they find out that his gills fall off and he's developing lungs for whatever reason. So they try to make him a man and have him walk amongst us as a man and, 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 and insert him in the war culture and show him how great modernity and, and, and Western culture is. And the movie ends with, he is like, fuck you people, fuck your culture, fuck all this stuff, I'm going back into the ocean. It may kill me, it probably will kill me, but I prefer death than to live amongst you anymore because you all sicken me and fuck all of you. I think how earlier we talked about there was the the one side of, coin, of the coin of like the white man's burden where um, we as white people have to sort of have this like bullshit paternalistic instinct towards quote-unquote uncivilized people because we feel that's like our divine purpose. I think this is like the flip side of that coin in which um, you have a being that we try to, uh, I guess, enfold and insert into modern culture and it completely rejects it and ultimately destroys itself, which it's a little bit of a deep we'll say too deep uh, interpretation to the themes of these movies, but it's there. And I, I, th I think it's, I, I think that's what kind of sets it apart from, you know, um, a movie like, I, I don't know, the original blob or some other weird creature equinox, which I, oh, I think that came out in like the seventies. Um, but no, I just, I, I, I love this movie. I love, you know, Revenge of the Creature, The Creature Walks Among Us. Uh, I just think they stand out um, amongst the pack of, like, kind of dumb... I shouldn't say dumb, because I mean, it, it often does get written off as just another, like, B-movie, you know, black-and-white B-movie that... Uh, it's like the archetypical sort of creature feature, although... As Liam said in the part that we didn't that would end up not being recorded, um, that accusation is often leveled at this movie by people who haven't seen it, because people who have seen this movie understand that it's a fun, um, kind of smart but also kind of silly movie um, that yeah really stands out from uh, from the rest of the movies of this era. Yeah, I mean it's great. I uh, I don't have any like uh uh, deep analysis on it or whatever, but it's it's. I think it's really compelling and a lot of fun. And uh, I actually haven't seen the sequels, so I'm excited to check them out. 
All right, so I guess that's it for the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, real quick, I do want to plug the uh, upcoming Night Stream Festival that's going to be happening uh, October 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th, so Thursday through Sunday. Uh, we're going to be covering it pretty extensively. In fact, my whole weekend is just going to be watching horror movies. Like, I mean, like literally back to back. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't check it out because in addition to a lot of really awesome uh, feature films that are debuting and, and playing there. They also have an amazing short films catalog that are going to, that's going to be playing. And there's going to be a lot of really cool panels there. There's going to be a panel with Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson, um, where they talk about like some of their earlier works that are not available. Um, and Issa Lopez who did, uh, Tigers are not afraid is going to be like, I co-host in that panel. Um, Peaches Christ, a famous drag performer, is going to be doing a panel on the history of camp in horror films. There's going to be a feature called The Future is Female. And there's also going to be these like weird fireside chats where different hosts um, Skype in or Zoom in from their homes. And they just talk about different things in horror. So uh, you can head to nightstream.org to, to get your badges or your tickets for it. Um, again, it's entirely online, so it's, you know, safe. It's going to be a good time. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting, like, next to no sleep this weekend, just so I can watch these movies and write about them. Um, so, yeah, you know, go check that out, nightstream.org. Tell them that Ha Business sent you. Um, we'd also like to thank our patrons. As always, you guys are the best. We love you so much. We cannot wait for you to be our magwitches. To, 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 to be our patrons so we can be the gentlemen about about London. Uh, also, thank to Chris and LVC, LV, LVAC. Check them out at www.xlvacx.com. Head to cinepunks.com to check out more episodes of this podcast and a bunch of other podcasts. I'm not going to name them. I'm going to name our friend Dana's new podcast, Help for the Helpers, new episode. The debut episode dropped today. You should go check that out. Dana's great. She's a patron for this. She's awesome. We love her so much, we absolutely 100% made a shirt for her, out of her, that has her face on it. That's Dana. That's absolutely Dana. Um, yeah, and be sure, if you're on iTunes, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and uh, go on Twitter and harass the Attorney General of Kentucky, Daniel Cameron, for dropping the fucking ball and convicting the officers who murdered Breonna Taylor. I agree with all those things. Yep. Peace. Do you believe in the devil? Throughout history, people have claimed to have seen the devil. In 1692, he revealed himself to the women of Salem. And in 1921, bootleggers in Minnesota claimed to have seen him dancing on mischief night. But the devil doesn't dance alone. He has his followers, his conspirators, his cults. Coming to the Cinebunks Network this October. A new podcast which investigates crimes. Committed. In the name of Satan. Anyone hear us? This is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. Anyone can hear this broadcast. 
We need your help. We've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named Mr. Gravely. And he's forcing us to review his collection of Marvel horror comics. Stuff like Tomb of Dracula. Werewolf by Night. Man-Thing. Ghost Rider. And so much more. If you can hear this, please contact our families. Tell them we can be found at... You can find James and Trey every other Wednesday at the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. See you there, Tomb Believers. <laughs> <laughs>